Our great loving Father, we thank you again for this wonderful privilege it is to have you speak to us about the world that you have made and the world that you lead. And we pray, Father, that you would give us insights so that we might know and understand the way things are and that we might be pleased to pray accordingly and to serve you as our King. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a delight to see all the images of crowds waving flags as we've celebrated the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. 70 years of reign and service. That's a long time in one job, wouldn't you say? And God has answered our prayers for she has been long to reign over us. And may she continue to do so for many years to come, God willing. And as libraries are filled with written histories of our beloved monarch, there'll be much analysis of what made her great. But I think in the minds of many of us, her greatest quality was her faith in Jesus. Occasionally I've been invited into someone's home to talk with them about Jesus. It's a great privilege, and especially if you talk to someone who's not a believer and they say, well, I'd like to pray and become a Christian. That is a wonderful thing to do. But what if uh, someone like, well, what if Queen Elizabeth herself invited me over for a cup of tea to to talk about Jesus? Well, that honour was given to a young preacher from the United States called Billy Graham, uh, probably the most famous evangelist of the 20th century, and a man who God has used to bring millions of people to know Jesus. In fact, he came out to Australia at least three times. He had the Crusades in 59, 68 and 79. And on all three occasions, thousands upon thousands of people came to know Jesus. In fact, even including uh, Peter Jensen and Philip Jensen and many others who from that moment realised that they not only needed to follow Jesus, but down the track would in fact follow the lead of Billy into Christian leadership. Anyway, Billy was over in the UK speaking at one of his crusades. Uh, Regular crowds of about 120,000. That's not a bad number. He was there. They reckon that he probably spoke to 2 million people face-to-face during that crusade. And while he was in the UK, the Queen requested a meeting with him to talk about matters of faith. Now, we don't know exactly what it was that the Queen and Billy discussed, uh, the script writers of the Netflix, The Queen, they, The Crown, they reckon they probably worked out what they were talking about, but we're not certain. But we do know that Elizabeth has a deep and vibrant faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, for example, in this famous, uh, well, she has famous Christmas messages every year, but in this one from 2002, she said, I know just how much I rely on my faith to guide me through the good times and the bad. Each day is a new beginning. I know that the only way to live my life is to try to do what's right, to take the long view, to give of my best in all the day brings, and to put my trust in God. I draw strength from the message of hope in the Christian gospel. Uh, Billy's son, Franklin, uh, said this of our Queen. He said, there's no question she's very devout in her faith and very strong in her faith. Her faith has been consistent, not just with conversations with my father, but throughout her life. And so as we celebrate the Platinum Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II, we can can rejoice in her greatest achievement, 
and that is that she submits to the true ruler of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. But sadly, many rulers live as though they rule, really, as though they are the ultimate authority, and they ignore the true and living God. As we've journeyed over the last month through this Old Testament book of Daniel, we've watched the journey of one particular king who dramatically ignored the true God and then just as dramatically repented. And that man was King Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon. Uh, Last week in chapter 4, we saw how he was warned in a dream that he should avoid pride. He was warned by God that the consequences for his arrogance would be humiliation. But he didn't heed the warning. This was the warning. You will be driven, chapter 4, from human society and you will live in the fields with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like a cow. You'll be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. Well, after a painful journey of humiliation, he did learn that lesson. And so in the final verse from last week, we saw I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honour the King of Heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud, as indeed he did. This king learnt the most important lesson that any king or any of his or her subjects must learn, and that is the King of Heaven is the true and living God. The King of Heaven is the true and living God, and we must humbly submit to his loving rule. If you have not yet submitted to Jesus as king, the question I've got for you is, what makes you think that you'll get off more lightly than the great king of Babylon? If you don't submit to him, if you don't hear his call to repent and to come back to him, to believe in Jesus as Lord, then what makes you think that you'll avoid the ultimate humiliation? Well, as chapter 4 ends with this great moment of faith in God by the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, we see a great high to a great low. From chapter 5, verse 1, we read that many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and he drank wine with them. Out of nowhere, we read that King Belshazzar, who was a successor of King Nebuchadnezzar, Uh, He was holding a huge party. King Belshazzar threw a huge party. We're not sure of the occasion, but it was certainly an opportunity for the king to show how awesome he is to all his people. And as he gathered with them there, drinking wine, and presumably lots of it, this happens, verse 2. While Belshazzar was drinking the wine... He gave orders to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. The king is drinking wine with this massively big party. Thousand people, huge. And the effects of the alcohol probably have lowered his inhibitions a little bit and his fears and maybe revved him up a bit unhelpfully and he has this brainwave. I know what we'll do. Just to show how great I am as king... I'm going to say, let's get out the loot from destroying the Jewish temple. 
Let's go and get all of their nice bits, the bits that were in the temple, the special things, the cups and all that stuff. Let's bring them in. And he wants to celebrate, in a sense, the victory of the Babylonians against the Jews. But he doesn't just stop with getting the cups and saying, look at these trophies, like holding them up or something like that. Well, we read uh, in 2b that he wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives and his concubines. So they brought these gold cups taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. He wants to treat them just like they're disposable cups or common cups or maybe still special, special cups, but he's just going to drink them and use it. But it gets worse than that. Because in verse 4, while they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. What arrogance. The king didn't just parade the riches of the temple. He used the temple cups to praise idols. They worshipped fake gods using the precious cups from the temple of the true and living God. I reckon they've got a pretty strong faith, don't they? They're obviously really backing themselves in this. They're saying, we are so sure that the Jewish God is a fake, that the, the God that these people worshipped back in Jerusalem was just a passing fad. They are so confident in that that they will use those cups and bow down to their own idols and think we have got it right. Now we could make all sorts of parallels with our modern world, couldn't we? We could say it's just a little bit like the opening ceremony of the Olympics when all of the nations are gathered and, and the, the strongest and the fastest and the highest people around the world gather there and what do they do? They worship humanity. Maybe that's an example of it. Or on a personal basis, uh, you, you have these moments in life where you, you celebrate achievements and people gather to say, we're going to celebrate your achievement. And what do you do? You say, yes, how good am I? Don't even think about our creator, as many people would do. But whatever parallels there might be, it's clear that Belshazzar showed great arrogance. And it makes you also think just how long God will sit back and take this abuse from his creatures. How long will he let humans trample his reputation and desecrate his glory? Well, it turns out not very long. Not very long at all. Because he's about to spoil this pagan party. Verse 5. Suddenly they saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. And right at that moment, as they say, the king saw the writing on the wall. And this is exactly where we get the English expression from, of course, this chapter of the Bible. And this has terrified this all-powerful king. Here how it's described. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. He's absolutely King Belshazzar is absolutely terrified by the writing on the wall. You don't want to laugh at people in their distress, especially if they're going through trauma like this. But I think we're supposed to actually here because this guy who has 
pushed himself up, his chest up as, as the greatest. He's now looking like a little scaredy cat. But what's scaring him? Is it the supernatural hand? Well, I'm sure that's true. But is it more than that? It seems it's quite possibly the words that have been written that he's just clueless about, but he knows that they're important. And so we read on in verse 7 that the king shouted for the enchanters, astrologers and fortune tellers to be brought before him. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means will be dressed in purple robes of royal honour and will have a gold chain placed around his neck. He'll become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Well, it seems now that the great stress of the king is he can't work out what the words mean. So he offers a huge incentive to his wise men. They will become so powerful that they'll be the three I see. And they'll have all of this wealth that comes with it. And so if you're that person whose job it is to interpret stuff like this, you'd be thinking, whoa, this is a pretty impressive um, opportunity to climb up the ladder. I'm going to get a significant pay rise. I mean, everything's going to be good, so I will make sure I do my very best at doing this. But the problem is, verse 8, when all the king's wise men had come in, none of them could read the writing or tell him what it meant. And so the king grew even more alarmed and his face turned pale and his nobles too were shaken. All thousand of them, presumably, they're all thinking, none of us know what to do. We're all clueless. And this was supposed to be a really fun night. And now suddenly, boom, it's not. All the experts were useless at interpreting the message. And not only could they not interpret the words, they couldn't even read them. I'm sure you can sympathise if you've ever had to mark exam papers. So what will the knee-knocking, pale-faced king do? Well, mum comes along. When the Queen Mother heard what was happening, she hurried to the banquet hall. Didn't have an invite, not sure why, anyway. She, she said to Belshazzar, Long live the king. Don't be so pale and frightened. It's all going to be okay. You love it when mum says that, don't you? Well, how and why? Well, verse 11, there's a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, the king, uh, your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and fortune tellers of Babylon. This man, Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, has exceptional ability and is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. Mum is sure it's going to be fine. So it's going to be Belshazzar, meet Belteshazzar. Daniel is again, it seems, going to come to the rescue. He's going to be brought into the king's service. Now, it's interesting that this king didn't know about Daniel. Or did he choose not to know about Daniel? Is there a bit of irony in there that, that may be kind of like when one king replaces another king or when one prime minister replaces another, they go and shred everything and most people lose their jobs? Is it, uh, what, how does it kind of work like that? Well, whatever it is, 
part of his arrogance in saying, I'm not going to think about the past. I'm not going to learn the lessons from the past because I just didn't like the way the last guy did the stuff. It may well have backfired on him pretty spectacularly. He started this brave new world where he's ignored all the lessons of Nebuchadnezzar, ignored the heritage, ignored the history, and now he's in a real mess. But now he follows his mum's advice. Verse 13, so Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king asked him, are you Daniel, one of the exiles brought from Judah by my predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar? Uh, It's kind of like, oh, I haven't met you before. Hmm. And he knows that he's one of those Jews. Hmm. The one of the ones, you know, the cups and mm, the temple and mm, yeah. And so he shares with Daniel this big problem. I've heard that you have the spirit of the gods within you and that you are filled with insight, understanding and wisdom. My wise men and enchanters have tried to read the words on the wall and tell me their meaning, but they cannot do it. I'm told that you can give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Well, if you can read these words and tell me their meaning, you'll be clothed in purple robes of royal honour. You'll have a gold chain placed around your neck and you'll become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. He's fully briefed and he's fully incentivized. I think it's a word, isn't it? He's now got the same carrot that's been given out to all of the other spiritual gurus And how does he respond? Verse 17, Daniel says to the king, keep your gifts or give them to someone else. But I will tell you what the writing means. He knocks back the offer of incentives. And maybe he's just in his older age, Daniel's just not impressed by that stuff anymore, been there, done that. Or maybe he realises that this king with all his power isn't going to rule much longer. Well, let's see. Verse 18, your majesty, the most high God gave sovereignty, majesty, glory and honour to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He opens the batting by making it very clear that the most high God is the one who rules really. And by inference, Belshazzar has acted like an idiot. Because the true, true God is the one who empowered his predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar. And all the good things that happened to that king came from the hand of the true and living God. Now, Daniel hasn't started to address all the messy issues of temple cups and all that sort of stuff just yet, but he's establishing the true foundation. He wants to say right from the start, the God of heaven rules really. Uh, Sometimes as we're talking to people, it's good to go right back to the foundations of things. Uh, The Bible starts with creation. And and the fact that God rightly should expect from us our worship and and to us to glorify him is because he's creator. And, And the fact that he will judge us when we don't do that is because he's our creator. It it all sort of fits into place. People might say, well, why should I have anything to do with God? Because he made the earth and he made you. Daniel's setting up a foundation. He's saying, God's the God who rules really. And everything I say is going to flow from that. But isn't it quite something that the same God who rules everything is the same God who has shown such mercy to us in the Lord Jesus Christ? He's gentle, kind, 
Offering mercy when we don't deserve it. That's the backdrop to all of this. Anyway, Daniel continues on his mini-sermon. Verse 19, speaking of God, he says, He made him so great. Sorry, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar. He made him so great that people of all races and nations and languages trembled before him in fear. He killed those he wanted to kill and spared those he wanted to spare. He honoured those he wanted to honour and disgraced those he wanted to disgrace. Daniel makes it very clear that the power of that king came from the power of God. Which is clearly what Belshazzar has missed big time. But then he talks about the failure of, his, of, the, of, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar. He says, but when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven from human society. He was given the mind of a wild animal and he lived among the wild donkeys. He ate grass like a cow who was drenched with the dew of heaven until he learned that the most high God rules over the kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. This former king repented of his arrogance and then the Lord restored his rule. Now, this is not something that could have just gone hidden. When the great ruler of Babylon crashes in such a spectacular way, everybody would have known about it, surely. I mean, we know about these kinds of things when we see the demise of Andrew O'Keefe or, or Michael Slater. Uh, we know about their demise, and they're not really in the same league as a head of state or a prime minister or a premier. Surely his fall was very public, and the lessons were very, very obvious. And if there's been anyone around who should have realised this, surely it should have been the king who's ruling right now, Belshazzar. Did he not know? Or did he not want to know? Well, here's Daniel's take on things. Verse 22 says, You are his successor, O Belshazzar. And you know all this. You knew all this. And yet you have not humbled yourself. You knew it all, surely. And you've ignored it. And you've done more than that. Verse 23. For you have proudly defied the Lord of Temple and have had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood and stone. Gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. But you have not honoured the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. When you see things, when you, you sort of take a wider shot and you see history as it really is, you see how foolish this king has acted. He has arrogantly ignored the lessons of his father. And in fact, he has proudly defied the Lord of heaven. He's not honoured the God who gave him life and controlled his destiny. And that makes him an absolute fool. Nothing wise about him in the slightest. And because of that, verse 24, God has sent this hand to write this message. This is the message that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel and Parson. What can Daniel do? 
He can read it, which is better off than everybody else, for starters. And he works out where the message came from. He says, you know who wrote it? God, the true and living God. And now he interprets it, verse 26. This is what these words mean. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. Parson means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Three different cryptic words, well there were four but one was repeated, they are now made clear to everybody. They were hidden before, but now their meaning is exposed for everyone. And the news for the king is very, very bad. His days are numbered and his reign is coming to an end. His performance has been considered by God and it's failed. And now his kingdom will be divided and it will fall to his enemies. It is a damning outcome. And the arrogance of the king now leads to justice being served. The arrogance of the king leads to justice being served. And here it comes. Verse 29, then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed in purple robes, a gold chain was hung around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Uh, which is what Daniel didn't want to have happen. <laughs> it's like, it's like oh, I don't care, I'm going to do this whether you like it or not. I, I'd be hard to know exactly what happened there. Maybe he thinks, well, if I treat God's messenger well, then maybe I might get out of this okay. But even though he might have done this as a last-ditch attempt, this is how it all pans out, the final two verses. That very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Justice was carried out. The outrageous arrogance of King Belshazzar was now met by the brutal justice of Darius the Mede. The true and living God rules over everything, even the actions of pagan kings like Darius the Mede. And if we don't see the raw justice of God poured out on human rulers right now, we know the day is coming. The day is coming when all the anger of God will be poured out upon those who have arrogantly clenched their fists at God. For we know the judgment day is coming and arrogance will be punished. And fair enough. I mean, who gets away with that? Who gets away with proudly pushing God aside? Who gets away with taking the glory from the creator of the universe? Who gets away with arrogantly undermining the rule of the Lord? Who gets away with that? Nobody. Nobody gets away with that and nobody will. Which I've got to say leaves us in a bit of a difficult situation. Because if God punishes arrogance and pride, then to be honest, we're all in a bit of a mess, aren't we? 
you sure there's never been one time in your life when you haven't taken glory for something that God's done? Ever? Like just one? Well, congratulations if that's the case because I've never met anybody else. We're all in a mess. And our arrogance deserves his judgment. Which brings us to the greatest irony in history. And that is that the creator of the universe, the Lord himself, willingly became nothing. Humbling himself. Shedding the glory that he deserves. Though he was God, Philippians 2, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Jesus died even though he was humbled. He humbled himself, wasn't he? He humbled, that's for sure. But what he took on the cross was what we deserved. We all deserved what Belshazzar got. And yet we were given the mercy shown to Nebuchadnezzar. For if we submit to Jesus, we will not get what we deserve. Might seem unfair, but it is a beautiful, beautiful outcome. Because Jesus took upon himself the punishment that we deserved when we treated God like Belshazzar did. And because of that, we know that we will rise on that final day. So humble yourselves, 1 Peter 5, under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up in honour. Well, I haven't seen it yet, but apparently at the end of the Platinum Jubilee Thanksgiving service, uh, the congregation were invited to stand and sing. Uh, what hymns would be chosen? I wonder whether or not the Queen herself may well have had something to do with it, surely. Well, they chose a hymn. And it's the great hymn by John Newton. Glorious things of thee are spoken. They gather at a time of great pomp, great show, with great glory going to this woman who has reigned for 70 years. And what does she want us to sing? Saviour, if of Zion City, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity. I will glory in thy name. Fading are the worldlings' pleasures. All their boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. 